0: copy of the Word of God, the Bible, to the book of James, also known as the epistle or letter of James. It's going to be, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 1. If you're following along in one of our pew Bibles, uh, it's going to be on page 1071. If you're like, I have no idea where James is, it's on page 1071. And we're only going to be looking at one uh Passage. one small text in the Scripture today as we look at that. And as you're turning there, and if you're using one of our pew Bibles, I hope it'll be useful to you. And I also tell people every week that if you do not have a Bible that is clear and readable and faithful uh, that you can understand, we want to provide one to you. So these are not just for decoration. They are tools for your use. And you can write your name in the cover and take it home if you need a Bible. We would love to get the Word of God into your hands, and ultimately our goal is to get it into your heart But today we are going to be looking at this letter from the Apostle James and my hope is that it will not only just be instruction and help you gain wisdom, my hope is it will help you to grow deeply in your walk with Jesus and we, we talk about this in church, this walk with Jesus. What is What does that mean, to to walk with Jesus? It means taking what we have learned and what we have trusted and applying it to life in such a way that the one that we're living for, the one we're walking with and the one we're walking towards, who is Jesus... We begin to reflect Him in our lives, in the way that we think, in the way that we behave, in the way that we talk, in the way that we serve, in the way that we worship. In other words, the Christian faith, the faith that is meant to reflect Jesus, is not only a spiritual and personal and deep faith, that's rooted within our lives, it's a practical faith that's meant to overflow from our lives. It's meant to be lived out and demonstrated to the world. And when we look at the book of James, that's what we're going to find. It is a deeply practical, pointed book. A letter from the Apostle James written to the early church. Now, a few things about the book of James. James. As we prepare to get into it, I want to let you know this letter is most likely, uh, scholars believe, the earliest letter from the apostles, the earliest book preserved in the New Testament, meaning that it was written somewhere around 46 to 52 A.D., If you're following along anywhere of the timeline of the Bible, that means it was written within 15 years within the same generation as Jesus walking this earth. It was not written hundreds of years later where the church kind of compiled some some thoughts of what they needed to add. No, it was written by those who seen, lived, breathed, walked, and testified to who Jesus was in their lifetime, in the world that also saw the same things. That were able to go back and say, no, that's not what Jesus taught. So this letter comes to us fresh in that view, which is awesome because most of the letters that we learn from in antiquity, many of them are so distinctively different from the New Testament, whereas the New Testament is provided to us and written within the first and second generation of those who followed Jesus we're around the same time of the first and second generations followed Jesus. Many works of antiquity that we learn about these historical figures were written sometimes 200, 300, 400 years later about someone in the past. That would be like me at this point uh, trying to write about the people that lived in Jamestown. That I could try to research and know something about them, but I wasn't around to testify to them. I, I, I wasn't around to testify to see the witnesses that were there about their lives. So I would not be an eyewitness. I could research and find out from other people that wrote about them. But it would not be a solid ground for me to bank everything on. And this letter is written by James to the church. And some people have commented about this book. And, and maybe you've read through the book of James before. And, and you're like, wow, that's like, boom, pow. Oh, yeah, you know, it's right there. And, and that's what Pastor Tony Evans, who pastors in Dallas, says. He says that James, when you read it, it's the in-your-face, no-holds-barred apostle. He says, in, in essence, if you're going to be a Christian, be a real one. That's how James will grip you. Lehman Strauss, who was a, a, an evangelical scholar in the early uh, part of the 1900s, you may have read some of his works if you ever got the hour Daily Bread little devotionals back in the day. He said this, it is an epistle, a letter of strength that is not destitute of evangelical character, but rather it is the characteristic of the evangelical. It is the character that is lived out. You see, James is going to present to us that faith, without being lived out, without being practiced, without there being works that accompany it, is not a genuine, sincere faith. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound like everything else I've heard you preach, Pastor. That doesn't sound like everything else I've heard you read. I mean, we read in the rest of the Bible, particularly by the Apostle Paul, he says a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what Romans 3.28 says. But James is going to write a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So you may say, well, is this contradictory? Is this a part of the Bible? When I read it, then I'm going to say this does not gel with everything else. And I would say to this, the this part of the Bible is not contradictory. In fact, it's complementary. It's, it's one to the other. You see Paul in these letters that he writes as we look at them in the past, these, these books of Romans, first and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first, second Thessalonians, first, second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. All of these are about our inner faith, the inner faith of a man's heart as God sees it and, and sees it reconciled to him. James concerned is complimentary because he concerns himself with the outward fruits of the faith. What blossoms because of that new life that Jesus gives us? And these are the things that not only that God sees, but the things that man can see. You see, man can only see outward things. They can't read our hearts. They can make estimations about who you and I are based on the way we act, based on the way we believe, based on the way we talk. But they can never see it. But they can see our outward acts. What is produced from this faith? Pastor Johnny Hunt wrote about this book and he says, God knows whether or not I am a true believer on the basis of my faith apart from any works. Before anything can be produced, God knows whether I'm a true believer. Take the thief on the cross who saw Jesus and said, today remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him, a man who has no time to produce any fruits of of the repentance other than, I'm sorry, Jesus. That's all his life could produce. Jesus saw that faith. And it was reconciled to him. But the book goes on to tell us that man can only know whether or not I am a truly believer as they observe my life outwardly. Jesus himself, shows us that this is complimentary when He says that we can distinguish between the true and false fruits by looking at a man's life. This is why He said in, in His famous Sermon on the Mount as He preached to the multitudes, when He said, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. He goes on to say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So inward and outward. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And Jesus says some starting words. Depart from me, for I never knew you. See, here's the thing where I want you to catch this. We're going to be looking at a work that's, a a book that's about lots of works and activity. 53 imperatives are going to be commanded out of just the book of James in five major themes, but we're going to be looking at that. But I don't want you to confuse this. You could have outward works that say all kinds of multitudinable things about Jesus. Many, many good, elevated, lofty things about Jesus on the outside, but in the inside be dead and and not knowing the lord but if you do know the lord in an inside personal way a way that you have a relationship with god it is meant to overflow in the activity of your life that is why james approaches the faith subjectively in the sense of our trust and confidence in the lord and why paul explains faith objectively as this instrument by which we are justified by God. James takes the moment to enlarge and magnify and plug in the amplifier and says, this is what our practical understanding of faith is. This is the encouragement towards it. Paul, he takes the great doctrinal truth and lays the blocks of a foundation this fixed theological reason why we do everything. This is why they're complimentary. And why do they do that? Because all of us need to have a present, living, viable, thriving, productive, sustainable faith lived out in this fallen world. We need it. And there is a difference in trying to live out a life that says, well, I just believe in God and I've done my little spiritual checklist, but I'm not living it out practically. That is unsustainable. That testifies to the world that Jesus is just a blip on the radar. Not the entire screen. We need to have this testimony there. And when we get into the book of James, I said there's going to be 54 imperatives, 54 directions. He is sending us all forward. And they're going to be talking about what it means to have a living faith. What it means to go through trials. What it means to demonstrate the law of love written in your life. What it means to control your tongue with wisdom. What it means to live with contentment and satisfaction in what God has provided in a way that doesn't show favoritism or idolatry. And if this is lived out, man, this is what the watching world needs to see. This is what the watching world needs to see. A watching world is looking at the church And sometimes when they look at the church, all they see is people with their arms crossed who are dedicated to one direction or another, and and they're not really excited about things. And they know more about what we're against than what we're about, what we're for, who we're for. And so a watching world needs to see a demonstration of God's love and power fleshed out. I mean, like putting on bones and skin and living it out through the church. So stand with me as we read just the opening greeting from the book of James. We have so much we can learn and glean just from this. This is what the Word of the Lord says is preserved for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad greetings let's pray lord god today that may not seem like much but anything that is in your word is so useful to us we may not know the gravity and the level of that usefulness but it can teach every one of us something about who you are and about your kindness towards us so today i pray that you would give our ears the ability to hear your kindness our eyes the ability to see your kindness our hearts our soul, our mind, our being, the ability to receive and follow and trust Your kindness. And that because of that inner faith, we would be shaped and there would be an overflow in our outer faith practiced that the world around us would see Your kindness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what can we learn from the opening statements in this letter? From this opening statement where James, the servant of God and of the the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. What can we learn about that? Well, our aim today is to see that our relationship with Jesus is what clarifies our role. What we're to do with that relationship as the redeemed. And so we're going to look at a few moments and see a few parts of this, this greeting, and, and hopefully it will teach us all a little bit more about what it means to follow Jesus in this way, to be a family of servants. First of all, we see James recognizing his own name. He doesn't try to cover who he is, who's writing this letter. He says James, and James is speaking as a newly created individual. He has only been walking in his faith with the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting that he is the Messiah King for about 16 to 20 years. So still relatively young in his faith. You may think that's a long time, but still relatively young. Why is that? Because when we look at James, we have to ask, first of all, well, which James? There's a bunch of Jameses in the Bible. There may be even people, you have the name James. It's not talking about you writing this. But which James? Is it James the Lesser who was the son of Zebedee and the brother of John? No, it's not him because this letter was written after that. and He died in 44 A.D. as the second martyr under King Herod. Is it James the son of Alphaeus? No, that's not him. He went on to do other things, but he's not recognized in this way. Is it James the father of Judas? Not the one that was the scariest, because there were two Judases that followed Jesus. No, it is not him. This this James is recognized by the early church, recognized by the disciples there as the very half-brother of Jesus. If you didn't know this, Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. Why did he have half-brothers and half-sisters? Because Joseph, his father, was his adopted father, not his biological father. The Bible tells us that he was conceived in a virgin's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit, coming upon mary and and what was brought about her was brought about by the god most high it's a miracle and if we believe in the resurrection that jesus really rose from the dead it should not be too much of a stretch for us to say if jesus can take a dead man who was in the grave for three days and bring him to life i'm pretty sure he can create a life in a virgin womb but this is the half brother of jesus see jesus whenever mary and joseph got married they had other kids and they were not miraculous children. They were miracles as in God provided every life. But they weren't other children developed in the womb by the Most High. They were Joseph and Mary's biological children. Thus the half-brother of Jesus. There was Joseph. There was Simon. There was Jude. And there was James. And there were also two sisters. We know this because Mark 6.3 tells us that these four and the two sisters came to seize Jesus. We see a little bit more about this James and how he became a newly created individual by his old life. In John chapter 7 verses 2 through 5, it's him with his brothers that begin talking to Jesus and say, why are you going to quit being a mystery? Why don't you just go to Jerusalem and and show them who you are? They're kind of go-demand. They don't really believe in him, the Bible tells us. That He is who He says He is. They have lived their life with the sinless Savior and they really have not come to this place of believing. I don't know what it would be like to be raised in the same household as Jesus right there in the in the moment. But I can honestly say I'm pretty sure there were many conversations between mom and dad and be like, why can't you just be more like? There are probably also conversations with mom and dad like, you're so perfect, Jesus! But they goad on Jesus because they don't believe who He is. In fact, in Mark 6.30, when that whole family gathers together, they're trying to seize Him. They're trying to have Him committed. They think He's lost His mind. But Jesus does something very unique with James. Even though James wasn't listed among the original 12 disciples that were following Jesus everywhere in His ministry, Jesus personally makes His resurrection appearance known to James. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15.7. That He made His appearance to Peter and to James. And then Paul says and later on to me. We see that it is James that after this resurrection moment, he's there in the upper room waiting for what Jesus had promised. In Acts 13. we see that he ends up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church when Peter is miraculously released from prison and has to leave the city. It's James that rises to be this person that leads the early church. James has a life that testifies he's a newly created individual in Christ. It is James that ends up chairing the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 that when there was the question about whether Gentiles could be saved and what must they do, should they be circumcised? Should they follow all the laws that the Jewish believers were following in order for salvation to be complete? James presents that letter not, not to bar them or exclude them or to make them try to uphold the law. It is James that is recognized by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.9. James becomes known as James the Just in the early church. The church historian Eusebius wrote about him and said that it was said he used to enter alone into the temple courtyard and be found kneeling and praying for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. Imagine being known that. That is camel knees James. Because he's praying so much for the people to come to a relationship with Jesus. He's worshiping so much that his knees become hardened and look like a camel's. That is the testimony of a newly created individual made new in Christ. Someone who saw the testimony of who Jesus was and had denied it for so long, but upon the resurrection was humbled and his life forever changed. Now, I don't know where that, how that speaks to you in your life, but maybe in your life you you have a similar testimony that there was all of this testimony and evidence and people talking about Jesus around you, and yet you were just hard and cold and stone and and you just couldn't do it. But one day God opened your eyes through the revelation of His Word, and it was that eureka aha moment that He is, and I'm forever changed. Or maybe in your life you you were surrounded by people that are like. And old James, they are the deniers. And you're just wondering, and your, your heart is breaking, he, you, you might be led to become camel knees because you're praying for them. That God would bring them forgiveness and show them who He is. But it's a testimony that God is able to recreate a life. Same name, different, new-made soul. This is what it means to first be adopted. That God changes us from the inside out as we see Him. But secondly, we see in this that James only speaks as a newly created individual. We see that James speaks about our called importance. He, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. That's how he chooses to identify himself. In his walk and in, in his letter that he's trying to deliver to the churches that are out among the, the dispersion, and in spite of his prominent position, half blood of Jesus, half brother of Jesus, excuse me, figure in the Church of Jerusalem. Instead of identifying by his prominence at the time, he identifies with a humble position. He doesn't mention his parentage. Hey, I'm Joseph and Mary's kid. He he doesn't mention his proximity to Jesus. <laughs> you walked with him three and a half years. I grew up with him all 30. He, he doesn't mention his position in church. Jerusalem's in the house. That's all he does. He doesn't even spring back. He says, I personally saw Jesus after the resurrection. You know how many people did that? Oh, like 500, but I'm one of them. He calls himself a servant. He takes the identity of being a bond slave, a bond servant. The book of Leviticus gave us the the the, the area that pulls us to, and says well, this is what a bond servant would be. It is a person who is volitionally they have personally chosen to deprive themselves of all personal freedom and totally subjecting themselves to their own chosen master for life. That is what a bond slave is. It wasn't someone that was indebted and had to go into slavery to pay off their debts. It was someone that says, I see this person and they're good and I want to be in their service. I want to yield and my loyalty and my allegiance is to their name forever. I will be carrying the title of a doulos, a servant, a slave. Not only by my new birth in Christ, but my faith that follows him you see the goal for james was not to be honored for who he was but for who he served that's an important lesson for us when we think about our called importance are we wanted to be identified by who i am or by who we serve he didn't parade himself or attempt to pull rank as one scholar puts it matthew henry who was a scholar from the the 1600s and early 1700s says though he was a prime minister in christ's kingdom yet he styles himself only as a servant and we too should act not as masters but as ministers the word minister doesn't mean a a lofty title it just means servant it's another word for doulos it was his glory to serve christ in the spirit rather than to boast of his being according to the flesh he was proclaiming with his life his own loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. He was declaring that to walk with Jesus is a step of faith out of the kingdom of darkness and into the domain of the King of glory. To step out of slavery to sin and slavery to the enemy to being a bondservant, chosen, volitional, laying down our lives at the feet of Jesus and saying, I know We have a relationship. I know that you have made this adoption possible. But if only I could give my life to serve you. It's that spirit that you find in the prodigal son that he knows he's going back to his father and he says, I know I'm not worthy. And his father adopts him, but the son's whole goal is, I'll just want to be one of your slaves. I just want to be one of your children, one of your servants. I don't have the worthiness of that. And the father wraps his arms around him. And the father embraces and adopts him. And you can only imagine the life that that son lived to serve at his father's side from that day forward. You see, we too, when we talk about redemption, it means that we were purchased by Jesus out of the marketplace of sin. That's all, all we are. We were, we were on the auction block. Yeah. Sell my life to this adultery. Lust, great. Sell my life to pride and greed, great. Sell my life to idolatry, great. Who's the highest bidder? And Jesus, by the cross, He purchases us, us, not so that we can be His just utter destitute slave, but that we are called His peculiar, particular treasure, His special possession. And He used the purchase that paid it all through the cross and the empty grave. This is why Paul, when he was relating these building blocks of theology, says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. He would go on to say, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. He would write to the Romans, having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin, the earning of that slavery was death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why Peter would write and say, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slave. You see, James understood his position the way we should understand our position that we had this position of being adopted by Christ but in the service of his name because of the purchase because of the cross it was nothing that we could earn or achieve there was no wages enough that we could develop it was because Jesus paid it it was because the price that he offered was costly it was God himself taking On the punishment of man. It was because of the passion He had. He did it because He loved us. That is the message of the Gospel. That is why it is so grandiose. That is why it is a free Gospel that is never meant to be treated as cheap. It is free to us, but it is never to be considered cheap. Jesus paid for that. And that's why we volitionally see Him as a great Great brother in Christ, of one who loves us and adopts us in his family, but we also subject ourselves to his name. And let me make you sure you understand this. Being a bond servant to Jesus, what does that mean when we volitionally, when we personally choose that? It means we understand that absolute obedience is implied with that type of loyalty. Absolute humility is implied that we understand our position. Absolute loyalty that says we will never do anything to defame His name. And absolute joy because we would rather never rather be anywhere else. This is what it means to be subjected to Him. And make no mistake, you may think that sounds too ruly and weighty here in the church. But no matter where you are, where you're going, someone's trying to place that yoke upon you in some way. To have absolute surrender, absolute obedience, absolute humility, absolute loyalty. And you better do it with exuberance. This year will be a testimony that just in one little corner of the American world. This, this, this year will be a testimony that people will say, Will your allegiance be to a donkey or to an elephant? But we as a church say, no, it is to the Lamb of God. He is the one that is the name above all names. He is much higher than any flag, anything else. He is the one that's whose banner we wave. And it is our joy to do so. It is our joy to make much of His name. Because He is the one that really has set me free. He is the one that loves me. He is the one that died for me. And rose again to say, I will never leave you. Or forsake you James speaks about that 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 called importance to have that obedience that that humility but James also speaks with a certain inclination a certain direction he says i am a bond servant of god and of the lord jesus christ he has an unwavering dedication to the deity of the divinity found in jesus that he is not lessening who he is He has a strong conviction in monotheism. And in the world where he was writing to, he's writing to these 12 tribes, that was one of the big fights back and forth. And it's still one today. Do Christians worship one God or three? We worship one God made known in three. The eternal, infinite God making Himself known in this eternal, infinite way. And whenever he says of the law, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we sometimes get like kind of cringy. Like I know in my household, sometimes my kids will be like, uh, God and Jesus. And I'm kind of like, "Mm," you know, they're they're the same, but they're also distinctively unique. They're the same person simultaneously as the one God, yet distinctively unique. And in this unwavering, definitive definition of the divinity found in Jesus. And while same time holding to there's one God, he says of God, the one God we all worship and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every, All three of those names mean something. That He is the exclusive Savior. His name Jesus means He who saves His people from their sin. The word Lord meant that all authority is found in Him. And the fact that He is Christ, that was not His last name. That was His title. It was His inherited title. That He is the very Messiah King, the Promised One. James speaks with a certain inclination that He will not bend His loyalty. It is unwavering in His firm faith that Jesus is very much who the Bible has testified that He would be and who He lived out and demonstrated to the world to see and who the church is meant to celebrate. If we're going to be a family of servants, we need to understand that we are newly created individuals, but we also have a called importance. But it all flies under the banner that Jesus... Is who he says he is. It's a unified message of the gospel. This is not meant to be a blind, unmerited loyalty. It is meant to be based on everything that God has revealed about who he is, what he has done, what he has said, what he has promised, and what he has made known, and the evidence that is found in his church. James, who goes from this person who once nah, Jesus, some have you committed. He goes from this, he is the Messiah King. He is my Lord. And though he's adopted me by grace, I live to serve his name. James speaks with a caring intensity. We see all this also here, that in this direction, it's to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. A 7th century Scholars said this about the book of James. We read that when Stephen was martyred, a great persecution of the church broke out at Jerusalem. And that all were scattered across the countryside of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. James then wrote this letter to those who had been scattered because they had suffered persecution for the sake of righteousness. And not only to them, but also as to the rest of the letter testifies to those who had become Christians, but who were still struggling to achieve a life of perfection as well as to those who remained outside the faith themselves and did their best to persecute and disturb believers. All of these people were exiles, though for different reasons. James is writing to the exiles. He's writing to those that have left. And in presenting this letter, he's going to let it be known very clearly that while you may have been dispersed because of persecution, it was there because it was permitted by God. It didn't catch God by surprise. God is not trying to chase the animals and be like, oh no, that happened. He permitted it. He permitted the suffering. We're going to look and see what trials mean in our life. And while God does not bring sin, God does permit trials. And He's writing to them that God is not through with them. Though you may feel and may you may physically be exiles, God is not done it 's like it's going to be known that this dispersion it led to the preaching of the gospel that it's the gospel was being advanced, even though it was not according to their plans, it was according to god's. It was letting them know that this fulfilled god 's purpose to take the gospel as witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world and whenever he 's writing to this language to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. It shouldn't be unfamiliar territory to a student of the Bible. And it shouldn't be unfamiliar territory to the readers in that day. Because these tribes, they had seen in history how God had been with the exiles. In 1400 B.C., God was with the children of Israel in Egypt and rescued them in the exodus. In 722 BC, God was with them after the kingdom had split and the northern kingdom was exiled into Assyria. Whenever the king the southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon in 587 BC, God was with them. When the Roman oppression came in 63 BC and took over the land to where they bent the knee to Caesar, God was with them. And throughout the Jerusalem persecution, after Stephen's death and John James's death, James the Lesser their martyrdom, God was still with them. Even under these incredibly harsh realities of the persecution that was found in their homeland. And under the extraordinary persecution that would be found in the Gentile world under rulers like Caligula and Claudius and eventually Nero. This was God showing His kindness to them and showing them they were part of his plan and the good of this dispersion was that for those who read the old testament because that was the bible they had in that day they could understand god's providential grasp that there's a scarlet thread that god is weaving throughout humanity to pull us to him and we don't need to miss it Promises is so that God's redemptive name, redemptive nature can be made known. And James is writing to these exiles for them to understand that they have a living hope. That while they may be estranged, they are not denied that hope. That they have a God who cares for them. In the middle of their suffering, God is looking at them. And that's good news for us because today you may feel like an exile. God cares for the exiles. You may feel like an exile because you may be on the outer rim and not really understand the things of faith and you may wonder, does God care for me? Yes, He does. You may feel like an exile because you're trying to live the faith and maybe no one else in your family, maybe no one else in your world is doing it and you feel like an exile. God cares for you. Maybe you have grown up in a heritage where faith was passed from generation to generation and living it out has found difficult because of loss of those connections, those roots. God cares for the exile. You may feel like that we are a church in the middle of a a land that doesn't care much about the name of Jesus. A dark land full of needs, full of hurt, full of pain. God cares for the exile. Those in these walls and those beyond them. We need to understand the intention of our life is meant to show care for those around us. And this is where we have hope found. In this opening line, we see one word that shows James speaks with a cheerful intention. That this may seem like, wow, just in that opening line, you're, Pastor, you're sounding kind of harsh and 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 you know, boom, boom, boom. But the whole goal of this letter is summarized in one word: greetings. This is joy. If we can live this out, there is extreme joy. There is extreme kindness and hope in this message of God being with us in the very inward part of our life and demonstrated from us in the outward part of our life in a sustainable way. It is a privilege and it may be painful at times, but it is one that brings a joyous faith. Why? Because you begin to see this life of faith is not some religion and ritual where you're trying to keep up with this person or beat that other person you get to walk in a relationship with the giver of life the one who is there and whenever you don't have strength he supplies his and when you don't have wisdom he gives his and when you don't have the words he speaks his when you go through trials he does not leave us it is a message of cheer it is a message that says this is what sustainable, thriving faith that walks with Jesus, walks towards Jesus, and walks for Jesus looks like. And may it be said of this church and the many churches in our, in our area that they are demonstrating to a world that their faith is not only something personal, it's public and profound because Jesus is with them. Let's pray. Lord God, today I pray that as we come to this conclusion that You will help us to understand what our relationship with You looks like, where it needs to be, and what needs to change. I don't know what that means for every single individual in this room, but I know that, God, You are big enough, You are great enough, You are loving enough that You will work with us. And and it may not mean perfection right in a moment, In fact, we might not ever even achieve any sort of look at perfection this side of eternity. But You are willing to work with the works in progress. You will save us complete to the uttermost on the inside, our soul and our being. But You will work with us to shape that which comes out according to Your purpose. So God, shape us. Show us what it means to walk with You. And Lord, for those that need to take their next step with You, help them do it today. Help them see the kindness that comes from your hands and the love that you demonstrated on the cross by paying for their sin, dying, and rising again so that we might have life in you. Jesus, have your way in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. This time our instrumentalists are going to make their way forward and we're going to have a time of response. And we do this each week and we give our people the ability to respond to the message that's presented because the Bible is something that shares with us what it says and what it means and how it applies, but it ultimately leaves us with this question what am I going to do about what God has said? And sometimes for those in the room it means that they need to go and talk to somebody to help them with their next step. Maybe it's trusting in Jesus Christ for that salvation that they have heard about but have not yet experienced, not yet have known. And today if you are looking at your life and saying, I can tell by my life, I know whether or not I'm adopted by Jesus. And I'm not. And you want to trust in Him and, and be adopted by His love, redeemed by His His price. I would love to tell you what it means to take that next step and walk with you through that. If that's you. But perhaps it's, it's you as a disciple to say, my next step is Maybe it's, I need to be baptized as a believer. I need to take that, that personal faith and take that very first commanded public step in saying I need to be baptized in the way that Jesus said that I should be baptized. Maybe it's you're here and you say, I've been kind of floundering on my faith for so long and trying to live it on my own. And I see that God has created a family for a reason that we're adopted brothers and sisters in Christ together and I need to be united with a family rooted in a local place where I can grow. I don't know what it may look like for you, but I will tell you this. I'm going to be here at the front and if you need someone to, to pray with or you have questions or you need someone to encourage you, that's what we're here for in this moment. But regardless of whether you get up and talk to me or not, the most important thing you can do is where you're at. Listen to what God is saying for you to do next. And trust and follow His lead. That's the way you need to go. We'll be here if we can offer any help as the music plays.